This is Annie Irish, the host of Cunt Talk, and it's episode five, Cunt Talkers. Uh, this week I'm interviewing Anna Larson, a personal friend that I know from graduate school at Simmons College, where we received our MAs in Gender and Cultural Studies in 2012. Anna is currently living in San Antonio, Texas, where she is a mom, writer, and amateur historian. Welcome to Cunt Talk, Anna. Thank you. Excited to have you here today. I am very excited to be here. So Anna's work is really cool because she does things that are at the intersection of food and history. And I know you cook often. Um, so every day. <laughs> every day. As, as every single day. I try to as well. What are, what are some things you've been making recently? Anything that's toddler friendly at this point. But I do like to experiment. We've been trying to make a lot of things from scratch. Um, that's part of the reason that I got interested in that whole subject trying to explore the roots of where foods come from, but also how things are traditionally made. We get a lot of processed food stuff now in, in the grocery stores, and I think it's it's easy to forget where those things originally came from and how they traditionally were made. We were talking the other day, and you said you made Play-Doh from scratch, so that's that's a pretty cool Yeah, we make, we make a lot of uh, play stuff from, from scratch, too. So... Oh, where do you think your first interest in food came from? Probably just, you know, I was always interested in, in cooking with family and cooking as a, as a family unit was always important. So you get those family recipes passed down, and I think um, that kind of sparks an interest. But also my love of history, I think combining the two and finding out where things originated from, where traditions come from, um, was always something that I was interested in. Did you grow up in a house where your mom cooked all the time? Both of my parents cooked. Oh, wow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, and they were both, I mean, from very different backgrounds, not always, um, surrounded by family members that cooked. My mom grew up in a house where nobody really cooked, but she had extended family, aunts and uncles, uh, big Italian family, and they really influenced her cooking as she got older so but both of them cooked and cooking was a family thing we would all participate so i love cooking i love italian food (laughs) me too what kind of food did your dad cook um they both had their things um he oddly enough even though he's never lived in the south per se, but he has a lot of southern recipes that are under his belt Interesting. that are his favorites. Um, a lot of seafood dishes because we grew up on the Jersey Shore area, so. Jersey Shore meets the south. Yeah. Not, not, but not South <laughs> Jersey. Um, so how do you think your interest in food and history came together as you got older and ended up pursuing a master's, sort of focusing on that? Uh, well, I got... I, had um, probably a bunch of different influences there. I studied anthropology and history in undergrad, and one of my favorite classes that I took was uh, anthropology of food, and it really delved into how recipes travel, how foods travel, and to delve into that, you really have to look at the history of human contact and I think that that was the thing that kept me interested in it because I was already interested in history 
but to kind of travel the routes that those foods had, had gone throughout human contact, throughout history, was just kind of an interesting thing for me to, to look at. And that's what my own research was um, based on, so at Simmons. So what's one of the first projects you remember, maybe an undergrad or one of the first classes you took at Simmons where you kind of had to trace a dish or a recipe back? Or, or is that how it's done? I imagine like a primary source, you know, you... It's easier to trace something with either one ingredient or to tr to trace a recipe even more so because you have a written record. Right. That's, as far back as cookbooks will go, which doesn't so take you back all that far. So what? So how? Oh yeah. So how did you describe your research process? I forgot how interesting this was because we would talk about it, and I didn't. Even, but I did not not know that it's easier to trace a recipe versus a a dish, or something, like. Well, if you're looking at an individual ingredient, it's kind of hard because you have to look at so many different resources. You're looking at narratives and um, people's accounts of their travels, uh, all sorts of documentation, you know, crops, um, how they're listed in, in like an inventory. Um, you can look at any number of resources if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, but it's a lot of research <laughs> to do all that digging. Sounds overwhelming. Yeah, but to do to do research on a recipe is a lot easier if you're familiar where where the recipe comes from, um, perhaps what some of the ingredients are. Recipes have changed names, so something that was called one thing even if it's in the same language. Uh, a lot of my research, um, I did a lot of research on pumpkin pie was my focus, my oh, example right. yeah, yeah. For, my, for my thesis. And to trace a recipe like that, the name for pumpkin changed so many times, even within the same language. So to do a search on a recipe, you had to know what all the different names for that one ingredient would be and how they would show up in all of those older cookbooks. So um, in, your, in your thesis, what was your thesis of, <laughs> of the paper? Um, and what did, you, what did you find over the course of your research about the history of pumpkin pie? Pumpkin pie is a very interesting food item. Um, my, my research basically, I was looking at how pumpkin pie could be an example of tracing a food through imperialism. How do you take a food item and follow its whole course through one way of human contact? So British imperialism kind of brought together all of the ingredients in pumpkin pie in, in different ways, in different times, um, spices, were the first thing to become part of a British consciousness. And um, once those were there, it, it came down to pairing it with the pumpkin aspect, which I've read a lot of different accounts and I think it's the verdict is still out whether pumpkins were something that originated in North America um, or if it was something that had existed in Europe uh, before that time, but um, I think that one of the biggest takeaways that I kind of walked away from my research was that, you know, it's 
you want, when you go into a project like that, you want to pin down a definitive answer to something like that. And it's impossible to say that a food item was from here and from here exclusively, or that it had come from this part of the world instead. So I think that the biggest takeaway for me was that where something comes from is is almost as important as where the people who are using it think it came from. So everybody likes to take ownership of an item and say, oh, we've always had that. So it's kind of a subjective thing to think that the idea of a food item being a part of their food history for as long as their food history has existed is just as important as if it really did or not. If it's from somewhere else, then they're completely unaware of it. That makes so. sense. I Didn't a part of your thesis also tackle gender as well? You know, women's roles in the kitchen? Or I, correct I me if I'm wrong. It. No, I, I did try and touch on it a little bit, but it was really hard because the time period that I was looking at, um, in Europe particularly, the people who were writing cookbooks were largely men. Um, it was a male-dominated, um, it was a male-dominated sphere, and you didn't have the crossover with cookbooks becoming part of a domestic practice, something that was acceptable for women to participate in until much later probably around the end of the 1700s is when you start seeing women publish cookbooks. Oh, wow. Um, so they weren't responsible for writing those recipes. And a lot of the cookbooks that I did look at later um, from America, particularly how pumpkin pie kind of gets adopted in the United States and they kind of claim it as something that belongs to America and are a part of American food history kind of of that whole like it's very subjective who owns a food item or who owns a recipe but um, there were a lot of women that did publish cookbooks from the 17 late 1790s um, straight on through and how they presented that recipe and how it changed uh, the description of what that recipe means um, was kind of was kind of an interesting um, development but you really don't see women as participating in that in that aspect of that's very interesting and problematic and speaks to doing the work of women's history yeah but also thinking it, of, with women in, in the kitchen and domestic sphere that you'd think that they'd have more of a handle on that versus men well men patriarchal societies <laughs> yeah well it crossed over a line for um for the publishing industry. That was the aspect that women were not allowed to participate in. So even if they were making the food in the kitchen and they were the ones creating the recipes, uh, it didn't matter. They weren't allowed, they weren't given the license to kind of put the recipe out there for the rest of the world. So you had a male-dominated field in the public sphere. So That makes were, sense. But I remember reading something a while ago. It was poetry-based, but women that couldn't get work published, they ended up having their own poems that they would send one another, and it sort of became this traveling thing. So I imagine recipes would take on a similar practice. Oh, you know, women sharing recipes, but then it becoming oh, absolutely. 
women yep. women still do this today though you go to a party yes. and you're like that's delicious what did you make and then you're you know it just gets passed around i mean it's not yeah, as in the public sphere as a book would be especially during that time but i imagine there were small groups of women that were able to and i don't know maybe your research came across that small groups of women that were able to sort of transcend that through alternative means if they certainly existed but there's no, there's probably no written record right. outside, and written, you know, personal recipe books that are really, really hard to come by for your average historian. You would have to have some serious connections, or happen to stumble upon one in somebody's private collection, like a family heirloom. A lot of them just didn't survive. But I think that you just kind of have to take the they did exist, and that's probably where those recipes came from. I mean, women are the ones that perfected those recipes and that made them. Right. So whatever exposure a man had to them, whether he was the professional cook in a restaurant or in a personal household, which was more common in that time period than you know having a public restaurant that had any notoriety, uh, Wait, you male, definitely male would have... Sorry, but male professional cooks were a thing back then? Probably more common than women. Interesting. Yeah, because it was a job. Women were not allowed to hold certain certain jobs. If they were a cook in a kitchen, they were not going to be the ones publishing a book. No, that makes sense, but it's just interesting so to see men taking they, on that role yeah, as even cook. If you had, if you had like a, a female staff member who did the majority of your cooking, who was your professional cook in your household, in a well-to-do household. She was not publishing her recipes. No, that makes but sense. It's just still surprising. Such a role did exist, I'm sure, but it just, it, there's no written record of her, what her recipes would have been. Some man took ownership of it. That's true. Took all the credit. They still take ownership of everything. Although I'm not, I'm not a, a misandrist, kind of talk listeners, don't worry. Just, you know, <laughs> the current election. Just talking about the facts. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very interesting. I did not realize that. So when you were at Simmons, do you remember any particular classes you took that helped to further your interest in these two things? Or one class that maybe sort of shifted your focus from uh, that one area more to another? The journalism class that we took together, um, I think that that kind of the switch the light bulb went on for me because <laughs> we actually did a whole segment on cooking well, women power and imperialism yes was that that, that class brought all of the elements together for me and then from then on i just started taking all sorts of classes that complemented it i took a class on nationalism which really helped kind of identify where the roots of some of those how, when you're building a, a food culture in a, in a country, it's so closely tied to a national identity that right. it becomes, you know, we have like things like it's as American as apple pie. And you and I have had this conversation right. before. American pie or apple pie is not American in origin at all. No, right. There is no part of it that is pie crust, you know, like the use of pie crust, the spices that are used in it, and even apples, none of them originate from the United States. Not a single one of them. I feel like and a somehow, lot of things don't. Huh? I feel like a lot of things do not originate in the United no, States. No, they don't, but that's that whole 
reappropriated, reappropriated in all sorts of ways that become they belong to somebody else. Right. And it can happen even with like the most mundane things, like with I think that's why I kind of got fixated so much on the pumpkin because it was such a good example of things that kind of traveled the world. It's such an easy thing to grow. It grows pretty much everywhere. It's cheap to produce and it travels far and it stays fresh for a long time. You can dry the seeds and transport them long distances. So pumpkin was something that made the journey pretty much around the world. And anywhere you find British imperialism, I guarantee that they probably have pumpkin growing there. I had an interesting conversation uh, when I went to India with um, kind of a long story, but I went on the... You went to India in 2011? 2012. And you went through, not a group through school, but through... No, I went on the, it's called the Gandhi Legacy Tour. So it's led by uh, Arun Gandhi, who is Gandhi's grandson. And his son, Tushar Gandhi, and they were in part our tour guides and um, they're, I mean, they do a lot of humanitarian efforts. They work with a lot of educational groups. So we did a lot of touring around the, the, the country going to uh, Gandhi historical sites and sites that had value for him and also to visit a lot of the charities. But in our travels while we were there, Arun was sharing a personal story of he lived with his grandfather for a while um, at one of the ashrams that we visited and it was just really interesting he was talking about how he had complained to his grandfather he was a very young child when he did this but he complained to his grandfather that the only thing that they ate for like two or three weeks was pumpkin and he was just like can we grow something else? Like, can we eat something else? Because they had done this whole, you know, we're going to live like the people. We're going to work the land. And if we can't produce it ourselves, then we're not going to eat it. So they were going through a tough time as far as, like, what they were able to produce, either because of weather conditions or availability of food items. And so pretty much the only thing they were growing was pumpkin, and that's all they ate every single oh, meal. Every single pumpkin. Day. So he complained about it, and so I actually asked her, and I said, I was like, do you know if, if pumpkin originates from India? And he's like, of course. He's like, they've always had pumpkin. Do you know, or do you talk about some of the different ways that they've prepared it for different meals? Um, I imagine it gets really novice. They probably had it over... Um, curry, I imagine. Or yeah, curry. they probably used a bunch of spices, and um, I'm sure it was really good, but... Yeah. I can imagine eating it every single no, I, day. Exactly, yeah. Well, when we were talking to you, I imagine being in India, you ate a lot of amazing food as well. Oh, it was, it was so amazing, and I really wish I could go back. Where where were you traveling, or like what part of India? We did mostly the northern west coast of India. So we did, we were in Delhi, we were in Mumbai, and... Um, there were a few, we went to Ahmedabad, there were a few other, like, smaller cities that we visited as well. And you were, you are, I think, still vegetarian, or you were at the time, which... No, I've actually never been a vegetarian. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were. No, I kind of wish that I was, but with, um, 
competing to other little people, I kind of right. feel like I have to set the example. So that we try sense. not to limit them in any way, but for maybe some someday reason, I will be. I thought you were vegetarian when you went to India for some reason. Well, I was kind of forced to eat vegetarian the entire time. Right. I was going to say, but it was probably amazing, you know. I must, oh, it was. I, yeah. I lost a, a tremendous amount of weight, though. Really? Yes. I think between the hard travel, because we slept on trains most right, of the right. time, it, um, it was just, it was a lot of, a lot of walking, a lot of hard, heavy travel, and uh, eating a vegetarian meal, it was, it was kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we should give a shout out to Dr. Laura Prieto at Simmons College, who's still in their history and women's studies department. For, Absolutely. For, so, if you're listening, Laura, the Come talk says hello, um, and, and we still think about you, but not the podcast. Absolutely, that that class was a huge eye opener. That class was great. I think she was yeah. my favorite professor at Simmons, because I know I was never able to take a class with Sarah Leonard, who was the previous head of the department. She may be the current. I'm not sure. I know it's rotating, but um, mm-hmm. Laura, I'm not sure who it is currently. Uh, but Laura's fantastic. Uh, really, really enjoyed that class as well. I still think about it. I email her yeah. occasionally. I have some books from that class in my bookcase. Um, the one about Hawaiian imperialism. Yeah, I still have that one too. Aloha, what is it? Aloha Betrayed. I think that's the name of the book. Yeah. Um, ba- like basic short history of Hawaii and how it was penetrated by, you know, America overtaking it. Yeah. And, and colonialism. Not just America, but later on yeah. America. Yeah. 20 for 20th century example of colonialism and there are many um so Too many. yeah especially today in the news uh what do you think of the role of women in food today in, in american culture uh, i think it's changed a lot i mean cooking is not just something that we've kind of relegated as like a women's role although I, I think I have an interesting perspective of it just because the way that our household is run is very traditional um, in the fact that like I stay home and I pretty much do all of the cooking <laughs> so in that sense I can kind of I feel like I can relate to women past <laughs> right you know, but the, it's, the it was stresses just... of that but I think that women in general like just having that choice, I mean, we do know, and there were a lot of situations in my family where the, um, like I had uncles that stayed home with my cousins and, you know, they did all the cooking and the cleaning. And so I think that things have have definitely changed a lot in that sense. Um, And having women participate so much more over time in publishing cookbooks. And I think that you see the majority of cookbooks these, you know, in the, these times are, are published by women. So. Well, I also just think the food industry and celebrity cultures really changed. Yes. The course of it, you know, um, Julie Childs really sort of coming into people's homes in the 60s and 70s and sort of making, making hard dishes easier and more accessible. And then now people like Paula Deen, Rachel Ray, um, 
you know, Paula Dean too. Well, I mean, but she, she's a I franchise, know. you know. I know. Martha, we'll Martha Stewart. Stew, Martha even Stewart, if. even. I feel like. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even know if you know about this, but thinking about the history of the commercialization of food, like post 1950s, and and the roles women would have. I'm 50s and 60s. I've up for grabs. I don't know as much about, but I feel like Julia Childs is one of the first to emerge. Um, yeah. And then later on, well, I'm jumping ahead, but Paul Dean, obviously, I, I, I don't have a chart in front of me as to how this worked out, but you, you do see other women picking up the baton and, you know, yeah. carrying it yeah. over the finish line. I had to finish that lame metaphor because I, st- I, I started it, but... Um, <laughs> it's okay. I don't know. No, I, I, think, I think things have definitely... The progressed. Barefoot Contessa. Yes. You know? I mean, there's so many, there's so many, it's hard to, it's hard to name them. But I wonder if there's something colonial or imperialistic about that in practice, you know, that's sort of borrowing from these other, we're making food in very sort of a a trite context, and I don't know, they may not be the nationality of the recipe that they're making, which is fine, but I wonder if there's something about that too, Like, like a subtle imperialism, sort of, I don't know. It's, uh, it's definitely kind of like appropriation, taking something and... That's a better characterization, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it's something that I, I definitely, I've thought about because uh, actually I had a conversation a few months ago with one of my, my mom's cousins about um, the, the term like to describe anything other than European or Americanized foods in restaurants, how we use the term ethnic. <laughs> right, right, right. So, that, I think anything that fits into that category, there's like a, a tricky, you know, do you, is it appropriation? Are you abusing them culturally by taking their recipe and making it at home? Or right. I, I think that that, it is kind of an iffy thing. Taco I mean, Tuesday. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I mean, really, how authentic is Taco Tuesday? I know. I mean, I was, we were just joking before we started recording about Pizza Friday. Pizza Friday's my thing, but I'm, I'm Italian. But but still, I don't know. There's some Cinco de Mayo, you know? like Yeah. Um, I, I mean, all of those. St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. We need, there needs to be a, a more considerate way of participating in the holidays that are sacred to other cultures. So... For sure, and I think the the consumption of food as well, you know, like to, to be more, I feel like people need to be more respectful of the food that they're eating and where it comes from, even if you are just getting takeout, you know, I mean. Well, I think I've used that as kind of my justification for making certain dishes because I'm like, I'm not going to just make the dish, I'm going to understand and have an appreciation for maybe where it came from and where maybe the ingredients came from. I think to understand those things and have real respect for that whole process and how things came together, that maybe that's my own little way of... No, I feel like there's a lot of that happening in farm-to-table restaurants and restaurants Absolutely. that are more... It's definitely becoming more popular. ...conscious of where ingredients are coming from. Uh, maybe, And I think there's definitely a respect of the food by those who are cooking it. Depend, like um, David Chang always talks about that and Thomas Keller and just sort of... 
you know, and I, I've seen so many episodes of Anthony Bourdain and, and friend, you know, just respect for, for the products and, and what you're cooking with and where they come from, you know? I think, I think yeah. more people need to have that attitude. Yeah. It's definitely, it's an interesting uh, awareness. It brings a new level to enjoying a recipe. I was just, when we were just talking, I was reminded of Obama in Hanoi this past mm-hmm. week, and I'm sure you saw the picture that went viral of him eating noodles with Anthony Bourdain. I was really jealous. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so amazing. I'm I'm upset for whoever the new president is. I hope it's not Trump, but that just being, well, A, it's the epitome of cool, and, yeah. and B, like, I don't know, talk about, I don't know, because Anthony Bourdain is such a proponent of street food culture, you know, and he he very much loves to go and eat like the locals do, and to just see him and Obama in like a noodle cafe in I don't know some random part of Vietnam was everything. I thought that was like one of the coolest one of the cooler moments of his presidency, and there's been so many. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I, I can't get enough of that image. I know. I should make it my Facebook cover photo or something. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> I definitely retweeted it. Um, but, I mean, just thinking about food history and how it's evolved, it, we were talking about this earlier off air, but uh, places like Boston University has a master's program that focuses on sort of the intersection of food history, anthropology, and gastronomy. I remember you mentioning that you would look at that, and there's other programs that are picking that up, but food history becoming its own niche as opposed to studying it through the ends of anthropology is interesting. No yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of become its own thing in recent years, recent decades, maybe, even some schools. I'm sure their programs are, are older, but... If you were to go back to grad school today and like let's say you didn't end up at Simmons do you think you would have or would you possibly be looking at some of those programs or if you go back for a PhD do you think you'd consider those programs or go into something totally different um I've been exploring other other areas of history um I think history in general has always really fascinated me especially looking at history through a cultural lens um so I, I think, you know, having having children has definitely changed my perspective on things a little bit, and my interests have changed a little bit because of that. And um, more recently, I've been doing more research on the role of midwife uh, in the United States and, like, how that, whole, how that whole system has kind of collapsed and we have this stigma surrounding midwives and this whole practice. Um, so that, that's kind of a totally different, you know, it still, still deals with, you know, the gender history studies and, and things like that for me, but, um, I don't know. I think I have too many areas of interest that are different that I couldn't, I couldn't focus on one thing and have that be my true passion for, you know, I think I would want to leave it open. So if I were to go back, I think I would just get, um, a degree in history probably keep it open <laughs> all the possibilities that's true all the crazy things that i want to go check out it's good to be open i feel like midwives too well there's a show the midwife on pbs um that's getting a lot of pop culture 
shatter, but um, there seems, and I don't know, don't quote me, but I feel like I've read in a few different places that midwives seem to be more of an emerging trend among women that are giving birth. They prefer like a doula as opposed to a traditional OBGYN. Yeah, it is coming back, and a lot of very smart OBGYNs are starting to actually have midwives be a part of their practice. So it's definitely, the, the tide is, is starting to turn, but because it's starting to turn, there is this whole conversation about why it ever went out of fashion in the first place. Why was there ever a period when this practice kind of fell apart? And the research suggests that it had a lot to do with medicine at the turn of the century. The medicalization of women's bodies and birthing. Absolutely. And, but doctors were trying to take over a whole, I mean, you have, you have this whole period where doctors were first going to school for what it was that they were going to practice. And they had to pave, you know, they had to pay for this practice. So what is one way that you could have steady income all the time, especially if you lived in a large city that had a lot of immigrant populations that were constantly having babies? You had a constant, dependable way of earning an income. Interesting. (laughs) So I think that that was definitely part of it. There was a whole movement on the part of doctors where they would slander midwives in the news. They would write nasty articles and propaganda about how midwives, like if you were to trust a midwife, you were literally putting your life and your child's life in, in, at risk because they didn't know what they were doing. Yet a midwife probably received way more hands-on experience and life experience doing this than a doctor ever will. <laughs> so like the more you do anything the better you get at it that's a simplification of it but yeah and i mean doctors i think the expectations people put way too much faith i think in the medical practice Uh, and somebody who has to a midwife has to oversee so many births before they're certified and even then i think that they have to go through a period where they're under uh an established midwife's supervision for a period of time before they can really branch off and do their own thing. So they go through this long, lengthy process. And most midwives today are certified nurse midwives. So they've gone through a nursing program as well. I was gonna say, so, in high school, I when I was going for regular gynecological checkups and when I was on birth control, well, whatever, birth control, um, the practice that I went to, I, I saw a midwife for like three years of high school. Then I just went on to college and just saw whoever was available to me then. But they do everything in an office. It's not they just do. yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. My old my old midwife, um, who I absolutely loved, <laughs> she had been doing it for like thirty years, and her her practice um, offered all of you know women's health, you know, Services. throughout life, you know, straight up through birth. Um, gynecological exams and you know any issues that you would have along the way like she was definitely the woman to see so so in addition to this current research you're doing on the history of midwives are there any other things you're also working on 
No, not really. Just <laughs> just the midwives and just the food. Just the midwives whenever I, I get a moment to myself, which isn't very often, but yeah. Have you, well, you've been a full-time mom for the past three and a half years now. Yeah. So have you, obviously that's been taking a, a little bit of a toll on your research and your other projects, but um, have you found that balance to be hard now that you sort of are starting on a new thing? It is challenging, but I think that that's part of, um, that's part of the whole process. You know, like I have to, the kids aren't going anywhere. Well, <laughs> Life isn't going School soon, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it might get easier as they get older. Um, but certainly I think learning to balance within, uh, all of the things that you have going on is, is definitely part of it. So uh, I, it's one of those things that I have to, I have to make time for. So. Right. Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, stay tuned next week, Con Talkers, for our next episode. Pending, pending interview, but it's always fun. Bye.